Hey, everybody. Welcome back to D3 Glory Days on the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. Hope you all enjoyed the group runs we had in Chicago and Boulder. They were a lot of fun and fun to run with you all. And we'll try to bring back some more maybe this summer, if not definitely in the future. If you've been a long time D3 Glory Days listener, you know the drill by now. But as always, we appreciate all the support you've given us throughout our time with D3 Glory Days. If you can, leave us a review or a rating wherever you are listening, either on Spotify or Apple, that helps us grow the audience and bring D3 Glory Days into the homes of many others just like yourself. Also, if you aren't following us on social media yet, what are you doing? At D3 Glory Days on Twitter, Instagram, and Strava. If you want to support the podcast financially, there are two ways of doing so, and we appreciate all the support you've done so far. We're on Venmo. We're on Patreon. You know the drill. We're getting closer to the cross-country season. Previews are coming up, so stay tuned for that. You won't want to miss it. All of our episodes, all of our articles we've ever done live on d3glordays.com, so make sure you check that out. Today's guest is four-time national champion from Mount Union, Sean Donnelly. When we first started, Sean tweeted at us that he wanted to be on the show whenever we got to throwers. So it's come full circle that Sean is finally on D3 Glory Days. We talk about his current season where he finished sixth at the U.S. championships and go into his other performances as a professional athlete. But we also talk about his time at Mount Union, the four titles that he won, the team title he won with his team, and the decision to transfer to Minnesota for his final season of eligibility. He brings a lot of insight as to how to calm yourself when the pressure is on, how he took an unorthodox route to the throws, and how much food he ate in high school to prepare himself to become a strong man. That was his first love, which helped him get into the throws. But you'll learn all about that in this episode with Sean Donnelly. With world championships coming up, Sean is going to do his best to get on one of those teams as he had the world standard this year. There are links in the show notes to follow him on social media, as well as his company, Grip and Rip. We hope you enjoy this one, and we'll be back again with another episode. But until then, here's the glory days. All right, welcome back to D3 Glory Days. We're joined now by a thrower who tweeted at us right when we got things started. And he said, if we ever needed a thrower, I'm your guy. If I remember it correctly, we finally have come full circle and we have Mount Union grad Sean Donnelly on the podcast. Sean, welcome to D3 Glory Days. Hey, happy to be here. It's been a a long time coming and we're excited to have you on and enlighten us in the throw, specifically the hammer but you're coming off USA's a season. You mentioned in the DMs when we were getting this set up that you're starting back up training again. Take us through, you know, your USA's experience, fifth place in the hammer. You know, take us through your performance and what you thought about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, this year's uh, US championships were pretty 
pretty decent for me. It's not, you know, uh, being a professional for as long as I've been, the goal is always to be top three to make the team. I had the world standard this year, but I knew kind of going into it, uh, there were three of us that had the standard and then uh, one extra person who had the top 32 world ranking. So it's like an either or criteria. So, um, and there's Rudy Winkler and Daniel Hall, top two hammer throwers in the U.S. this year. They're kind of, I guess, a league above the rest of us this year. So I knew it was me and this other guy, Alex Young, kind of duking it out for that third spot. Um, and uh, I don't know, I guess, like I said, pretty happy with my performance. I know, like I said, season's best at 77.50 and like I had the world standard and I was kind of, you know, vying for that third spot. But I guess if you look, you know, kind of at last year's Olympic trials, like falling out of the Olympic trials at Hayward Field kind of really shook my competitive confidence, if you will. So this whole past season has been spent kind of uh, rebuilding who I am mentally, emotionally, physically to an extent, and uh, just kind of remembering how to compete again. So to go to USA's, I think I almost had one of my most consistent meets of the year in terms of how many throws I marked. So with all that being said, like, yes, I would have loved to make the team. So I'm kind of disappointed about that, but like, this was a big step forward for me this year in terms of, like I said, competitive mindset and confidence and all that stuff after a really shaky 2021 and then obviously dealing with the pandemic and everything before that. So kind of uh, back on track, if you will, got my head on straight after, after this, uh, like I said, shaky past year of my life. And um, yeah, hopefully uh, onwards and upwards next year. Not to take you like immediately back to like a bad memory, but let's, let's go back to the Olympic trials and, and fouling out and kind of the aftermath of that. How did, how did you one, like what, what did it feel like kind of walking out of the ring that day? And then how did you approach kind of building yourself back up after that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, man, the whole experience of Olympic trials, uh, you know, just trying to think back to it, it, it honestly just felt like uh, a dream, but really more like a nightmare. Right. When I think back to it, I went back to, to Eugene earlier this year for like a regular season meet. And even just being there again after the Olympic trials experience that first time around, like I said, it just felt really weird. Like I've been here and I've done this before, but like, like I said, 2021 was almost like a, like a nightmare. You know, you, I followed my first two throws and uh, with each kind of foul that, that came, I was, you know, the pressure builds where like, even then it was just a, it was a preliminary day. It wasn't even actually the final. So I'm thinking like, I'll just do something easy, like get, get a mark. And then first throw goes wrong and you're like, okay, well, I've done this before. I can get a mark. Like, it's not a problem. And then second throw, it happens again. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what's going on. And then go over, talk to my coach and I step back into that ring. And the only thing I'm thinking is like, you know, just, just trust the process. Like you've, you've thrown a, a, almost not a million, but like tens of thousands of times you've marked throws thousands of times. Like there shouldn't be a problem at all. And then it just happened again. So walking out of that ring, of course, I think the thing for me that I've realized afterwards was like, I had put so much pressure on myself, not just like from friends and family, but also people out there on Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff cheering for me, rooting for me, you know, all the people that follow me on social media, like they have this expectation of me to, you know, make the Olympic team. And uh, I guess I kind of let that get to me because um, I didn't want to let all these people down. So rather than thinking it have been like a positive, but like, Oh, all these people that support me, I was kind of viewing it more in a negative light of like, Oh, there's, you know, there's so much that could go wrong. And then all these people would be disappointed in me. So that's kind of been the big switch since then is like I immediately like I posted, I think, just afterwards and got like a huge, huge outpouring of support from, like I said, all these people that follow me, friends, family, people I've never met before, people I've met once or twice, whatever. And they're all like, hey, we still love you. We support you, all that stuff. And I realized like, oh, I should have had that flipped, like even from the start, like people believe in me, they want me to succeed. So then over the past year or so, it's been um, nice to see people still kind of sticking by my side and, and supporting me in my career and all that stuff. And then, and then, yeah, just a lot of, uh, in terms of coming back from that, it, uh, a lot of soul searching, trying to figure out if I still wanted to do this. Cause after a moment like that, you put in four or five years, 
of hard work and you're like, well, what do I have to show for it? Right. And then, so like I said, kind of retooling all that stuff and thinking like, oh, Hey, I'm doing it. Cause I, I really, when it comes down to, it, I love this sport. Like I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. I wouldn't want to be working a desk job. I wouldn't want to be doing strength conditioning or whatever. I enjoy the process of training and, and getting better and, and kind of, uh, I don't know, just, just really enjoying the process and work with sports psychologists. Like I said, trying to kind of help my competitive mindset. Like I said, it's the big thing where like uh, arousal control, breath work, meditation, you know, technical cues, technical focus, stuff like that. And um, also just kind of exposure therapy where like, I think the reason why I struggled so much in 2021, where like, I think I can only, only competed five times. And even then most of my com competitions were pretty shaky um, in terms of confidence in the ring. Um, so this year, the goal was to just compete a bunch. I think I competed, I think maybe 10 or 11 times. And, um, it, it, I definitely needed that work because I didn't really feel confident in my, you know, I guess, technical skills and competition until probably about USA's or just before. So yeah, it's been, it's been a long road back trying to, like I said, get my head on straight again, but yeah, I'm glad I kind of stuck with it. Cause like I said, I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. One thing we've learned from field event athletes, as we begin to interview them more you know, track and field, you don't really get timeouts in the running events, but in field events, you kind of do. And especially as what you were just saying about, you know, you're following the pressure builds as you foul again, what are some things that you learned from that you were kind of mentioning with the breath work and working with sports psychology that you can pass on to others, maybe college athletes that if the first two throws are fouls, like what are some cues that you use that you could pass on for others on that third throw when you need to get a distance? Yeah, for sure. Um, my kind of big go-tos are um, just kind of obviously sitting down and then just taking some like deep, slow breaths. Cause obviously at that moment in time, your adrenaline is kind of pumping uh, for the most part, at least for me. Um, so being able to kind of ground your energy a little bit. And I've actually learned this from, uh, I started, I picked up yoga this past year. That's a, that was a fun thing to kind of, like I said, find some stillness and calm my mind a little bit. I'm a pretty high strung guy, I suppose. And uh, my yoga teacher, I don't know, at the beginning of class once we we're doing like a seated meditation and she's like, all right, you know, take your cross-legged stance, whatever, and sitting Indian style or whatever it is. And, and uh, either with palms up, which is kind of more for like, I guess, harnessing energy in a weird, you know, Zen spiritual sense, or um, palms down on your thighs is more of a grounding sort of thing if you're, if you're more high energy right now. Um, so that's kind of my thing is I, I would, in between throws, if I was feeling a little bit more jacked up or even, um, you know, before meet, if I'm too excited, I sit down, close my eyes, hands or palms down on my thighs and just take deep, uh, deep breaths in through the nose, uh, four count, hold for four count, exhale for four count, and then uh, hold for four count at the bottom of the breath. And um, even with just one or two breaths like that, I can feel myself kind of calm down now at this point. So that's kind of the best thing uh, that, that I found for me personally, outside of that, um, journaling, having an idea of like just before you're competing or even sometimes in between attempts, write down what you're about to do. Because like my thing, you know, especially at big meets like the Olympic trials, there's uh, camera shutters going off, there's announcers, there's music sometimes, there's the crowd, there's other people throwing, yelling. There's just, it's a huge commotion. So it's easy to kind of um, get distracted, I guess. And that's, that was my thing. So sitting down, writing down like, all right, this is my, you know, main objective for today. Like I'm going to feel the ball out left or whatever. And then um, the two or three things that I'm going to do to execute that, whether it be like I'll oh, pushing with my right leg or um, keeping my core a little bit more stable or stuff like that. And just having a better idea. Cause once you get under pressure, once you're under stress, it's easy to, like I said, get distracted. So if you know those, that one thing you're focused on, if you know those two cues that you, that you need to execute, much easier to recall, especially if you have a little training journal, you're sitting down in between throws, you pull it out, you read over it again, and uh, hopefully keeps you on track and um, hopefully should do the job. So yeah, it's kind of my best advice, I suppose. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, I'm always kind of like surprised watching track when they cut to the field athletes and someone's like taking a nap, you know, <laughs> in, in between throws or jumps. But I think, you know, as distance runners, our our event, once it starts, it's nonstop, right? There's no chance to yeah. like mentally check out. But but in a lot of the field events, you do have those breaks. And so managing the breaks becomes almost as important as your attempts. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's uh, it, it sometimes can be anywhere from like three to 15 minutes sometimes between attempts. So it's yeah, it's a lot of idle time. You got to try to stay warm, but also stay focused. So it's it can be tough. A little envious, I must say, of the running events where you just you just go. Yeah, you wouldn't. I'm not sure you would be envious 20 laps into a 10K, but no, I was gonna say it's a different, it's a lot more painful, but uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I had a similar Olympic trials experience to you. I, I finished dead last in the 10K, got lapped twice, so I, I know, I know how it feels. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to talk about your social following because you do have a pretty large Instagram following, especially, you know, I, I think a lot of people would agree that field events kind of struggle for exposure sometimes. So it's cool mm-hmm. to see a field event athlete, I mean, track athletes too, but especially field events who, who has that social following kind of talk about how you started building that up to where it is now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of throwing it back to what I think it's 2016, 2017, first year professional, like I'm trying to figure out like, you know, how to just survive. Right. And, um, so my, in my mind, I'm like, Oh, I got to find sponsors, stuff like that. And, and, uh, through some connections through like friends and family and strength coaches and other people I knew, like I'd get like, Oh, here's a little small protein sponsorship. I'd get, you know, just like some freeway protein and stuff like that. And then I eventually reached out to uh, Jared Rome of Ironwood Track Club and, uh, iron or like Jared told me, he's like, Hey, if you want to make a living, like in this for real, if you want to get real big time sponsors, build a, build a social media following. Cause this is like I said, 2016 Instagram started picking up more around then and then kind of took off over the next few years. Um, and he's like, so, so start building a following. And at that moment in time, I think I had maybe a thousand followers or something like that. And um, but I really took that to heart where I was like, all right, I'm going to build a social media following. I'm going to try to post on Instagram and get followers. And then I started um, vlogging on YouTube. I was a big fan of like Casey Neistat and some other people on YouTube back then. So I was like, I could just do this, but for throwing, because, you know, how often do you get to see a uh, professional thrower and what they do in their day-to-day life? And I guess kind of like the big driving factor behind most of my social media stuff at that point in time was like, you know, what would my younger self have wanted to see? Like when I first started out in, in the sport, I would have loved to see what Kibway would Kibway Johnson was doing on the day to day and other people like that, where you get to see like, Oh, this is how they live their life. This is kind of the life that perhaps I need to shape mine into if I want to go down the same sort of path. So it's kind of, like I said, carving out a path a little bit to make it a little bit easier. And turns out I kind of really enjoyed that. I enjoyed the creative process of editing and filming YouTube videos and stuff like that. So it was a good pastime because otherwise when you're training, you know, I had to work a, a couple of part-time jobs and stuff and, but it was a good creative outlet, made it fun. And also was, like I said, a way for me to kind of find sponsorships over the years and help fund my throwing career. I don't know if it necessarily would have been make or break, but it definitely did um, help out from time to time when I'm thinking like, all right, how am I going to pay rent next month? And then a random, you know, DM pops in my inbox and it's like, oh, here's a little brand deal for you. And I'm like, okay, this, you know, it helps. So you really piece and stuff together. But um, yeah. And then from there, I've just been kind of posting consistently, throwing videos, lifting videos, whatever, trying to teach you know educate stuff like that little bits and pieces of the hammer throw because it's super niche so like you can there's almost a built-in audience if you just post anything for something that small so 
Yeah, staying on your social following, I saw one of your reels that you were leaving the Olympic Training Center. And that's, you know, I knew athletes would go there for, you know, training stints, but it seems like you were there for quite some time. Can you take us through your journey at the Olympic Training Center, how you're able to be there and just everything that is involved with with that? Because I am, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. No, it's um, being at the Olympic Training Center is like a really, really uh, crucial kind of stepping stone, I guess, for my career where, like I said, I, uh, I finished up my collegiate eligibility at the University of Minnesota in 2016, did a year there, uh, post-collegiate professional, um, kind of on my own almost, where like I had to sneak into facilities and all that stuff and dealing with, you know, Minnesota weather, zero degree temperatures, snow all the time, like throwing outside isn't really the most feasible thing, especially when there's, you know, a foot or, or two of snow on the ground. And um, so after that first year, I was like, all right, I need to get out of here. I need to go somewhere. And uh, luckily that year, I was able to take a couple of trips down to the Olympic Training Center as, um, I guess, a, I forget what they called it back in the day, but like a development athlete, uh, athlete development funding for, for USATF. Um, we got to go do two little workshops out there. And so I got to kind of experience what the Olympic Training, Olympic Training Center life was like, where the weather's beautiful all the time. You're essentially going back to college, but on a full ride scholarship where you don't have to go to classes. Um, room and board's taken care of. There's a dining hall. You don't have to do dishes. You don't have to cook you're surrounded by other elite level athletes where like that was a huge thing for me, the environment of being around other people who understand what I'm going through on a day-to-day basis. And so for me to get in, I had to kind of, I did, I had a sweet talk to the coach there a little bit, you know, kind of get him to, to I had to play the game. I had to get him to believe in me as an athlete, of course, because it's a pretty, um, I don't know, it's, it's a, it's a hard program to get into. And uh, so I applied and I knew the general stipulation was that you were supposed to have like had thrown the world standard or something like that. Like if you hit the world standard as your, if you're a collegiate athlete or whatever, like they're pretty much going to let you in. And at the time for me and my PR was like 74, 35, I think. And the world standard was 76. So I was like, all right, I'm going to have to kind of finagle my way into this. And uh, I applied, I filled out this little form. And um, I, at that point, like I hadn't heard back for two months. So I'm like, I guess this isn't going to happen. I was planning to move to Phoenix with some of my buddies and just train on my own. The same thing I was doing in Minnesota, but just with warm weather. And then um, I got a call. Like I was literally like ready to go like that week, moved to Phoenix, got an email, got a call. And they're like, Hey, like you got accepted in the Olympic training center, like resident athlete program. Like, and I'm just jumping with joy. I remember like literally yelling on the phone, like as soon as I hung up and uh, my mom's like, what's, what's the problem. And I was like, I got accepted into the, to the training center. Um, so I moved there and, and like I said, I got to spend, what was it? Four years on site pouring, you know, the pandemic. And uh, the usual stipulation is about two years on site for sure. And then if you're still sticking around as a resident athlete, usually they say like, oh, by the third or fourth year, like third year, maybe you get to stay on site, but the fourth year for sure, you should be living off site. But um, with the pandemic and everything, they kind of extended that a little bit. So I was one of the fortunate people who got to stay there for four years on site, rent free, definitely helped me, you know, like I said, financially, where, uh, you know, as a division three athlete, I racked up a, a nice, um, student loan you know debt that's what and, it's all uh, about that's what it's all about exactly. that's why that's why we love d3 exactly, exactly. <laughs> so um so that financial stability played a huge role in me continuing to throw like i don't know i'd like to say that i'd still be doing it had i not been there but realistically who knows um and, and then like i said the the financial component was huge the environment was huge being able to build a steady routine not having to worry about work being able to walk to and from practice into the weight room and everything and then back to the dorms and take a nap and go to sleep. And it's really the most elite level of kind of high performance that you can probably find um, almost anywhere in the world. So yeah, it was uh, very, um, I don't know, like I said, beneficial. It just, it really was taught me a lot about who I was, uh, who I am as an athlete, what it takes to be successful. What, what, like I said, what true high performance really looks like. So, yeah. 
It's huge. It sounds like when you're feeling motivated and having success, that must be like the best place in the world to be. But if things like aren't going well, I imagine it's kind of a pressure cooker because it's so condensed and you're just, you know, eating and breathing the hammer throw every day. Were, were there times where it was tough to be there? Oh yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's definitely wears on you at times and you see everybody go through it. And um, I guess in a way that's a good thing, right? Because my experiences at the training center, I think really helped shape me be successful as just a professional in general, because um, you're, you're constantly in it. There's no separation you know, when you're living on site, like, yes, you can, you know, if you have a car, you can go drive off site. You can, but unfortunately in Chula Vista, where it's located, it's like 30 minutes from anywhere fun. Like if you want to go to the beach, if you want to go downtown, you want to get some good food, some good tacos, something like that. Like you're gonna have to drive at least 20 minutes, but usually 30 to 45 minutes. So it's like, you're really in a bubble and uh, being in that sort of environment day to day after day, you're training, like your entire day is shaped around training. And at the same time, you have a lot of free time that can really wear on you where like, all right, you wake up, you have breakfast, you go train. I had a few hour break in the afternoon, go lift, you get done, you eat dinner. And then just so much downtime where it can really eat at you. And then if you're, if you're hurt, if you're having, you know, a bad stint of training, it's, it's hard to kind of separate yourself from that. So it, it's definitely tough. And I think, I don't know. I, the, the thing I said after living there for a few years is that I think everybody should have to come to the training center as a professional athlete and do one year for USATF to be like, all right, it's either going to make or break you where like some people are like, no, I can't do this. This isn't for me. Whereas you really get to see the people who are like, all right, I'm in it. You know, it doesn't matter if I have those values, I'm going to stick it out and I'm going to be successful no matter what. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be very financially feasible, but you know, in theory, I think um, it'd be a good way to kind of weed out the people who are, you know, in it hundred percent versus the people who are kind of half and half out. Cause I'd say about, I don't know, half the people that I was, I guess, training partners with or teammates there. Um, I'd say about half of them, yeah, either dropped out or retired after they left the training center or they're still doing it. Uh, the other half are still doing it. So like I said, it's um, a kind of good filter system, I suppose. But yeah, it can be it can be tough at times for sure. Well, we've learned kind of where you are present day, but it wouldn't be D3 Glory Days without learning about your days at Mount Union. Everyone's favorite thing to talk about their college days. You grew up in Ohio. I'm assuming you knew about Mount Union maybe growing up. Like, take us through that recruiting process and how you landed at Mount Union. Yeah, yeah. I had a um, quite a different experience, I think, when it comes to college recruiting, where I didn't start throwing uh, until my senior year of high school, which is, you know, almost too late to be recruited in any sense. Um, and so when I was actually filling out college applications and stuff, I had it narrowed down to uh, yeah, it was Mount Union, Ashland University, which also would have been a great choice, you know, for me to go to school in terms of pursuing throwing with Judd Logan there. And then uh, Slippery Rock. And then I forget what the fourth one was. I think it was maybe like Toledo or something, but uh, I didn't want to go to Toledo. I thought it was too big. I was pretty shy and not very outgoing growing up. So I was like, I need a smaller environment. Um, and then Slippery Rock was kind of enticing, but it was in Pennsylvania. I was like, eh, I don't know. And then um, Ashland uh, Judd never got back to me because like I said, I, I started throwing my senior year. I think by the time I had filled out all these athletic, you know, uh, questionnaires to, you know, get recruited, I had been only throwing maybe 47 feet in shot put and maybe like 130 feet discus. So like at that point, it's not like a really enticing grab for them to reach out and be like, Hey, you know, come on a visit or whatever. And unfortunately Mount union division three was, uh, one that was like, Hey, we're interested. And so, uh, Kevin Lucas, who's, I think he's still the head coach there, reached out. He's like, hey, come out for a visit. Like, 
we'll show you around, we'll do an overnight with you and everything. And uh, went down there and yeah, I mean, I liked the campus. I liked the team. The facilities were, were pretty, pretty solid for a division three school. And um, I was like, yeah, you know, like I like this throwing thing. I kind of want to see where it takes me. So I'm just going to go to Mount Union, not to say it was entirely focused on, it wasn't an entirely athletic decision, but I was like, well, if I get to have, you know, I like the school as it is. So track's just kind of a bonus. Yeah. So it was uh, essentially walked on. And then by the time I finished my high school career, I think I'd thrown 53 feet in shot and almost 160 feet in discus. So by that point, I would have been a decent recruit, but I was just so late into the, into the year that most people, like I said, I was kind of overlooked. So um, Mount Union was really my only spot for me to go. So it was an uh, interesting, interesting uh, way that whole thing kind of branched out over the next few years. Is, is Hammer Throw a high school event or do you only find that in college? I think it's only a high school event in like maybe Washington. And then I think they kind of do some unofficial stuff now in, I think, maybe New York. Rhode Island, it's definitely a sport there. And then um, I think it's kind of picking up across the U.S. where, like I said, there's some unofficial, like there's an Ohio high school state hammer championships unofficially. Um, but, uh, yeah, most of the time, most people don't throw a hammer until they get to college. So that was the, that was the case for me. I got there as a shot and discus thrower in, like, literally, like, day one or day two of, like, fall training. One of my senior teammates, Sean Denard, he handed me a hammer. He's like, here, you're going to learn how to throw this. He taught me the throw, Here, throw this. And you just launched <laughs> yeah. it like. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. It's like, well, that's the thing. We weren't even able to throw hammer in the falls at Mount Union because our throwing field, like our long throws field was a football practice field. And if you guys know anything about, you know, oh, yeah. football, you can't takes... do anything with Mount Union football. You can't take their field yeah. spaces. Exactly. So um, for the whole fall, that first fall, all we did was hammer turns, which honestly was maybe a good thing. But uh, yeah, so I didn't, I hadn't even thrown the hammer until I think it was March of, uh, of, of that freshman year. So if I'm a high school coach, I'm not trusting my high school athletes to throw a hammer throw or a javelin. Like that just seems too dangerous for kids under 18. Uh, yes and no. I mean, like, like yeah, I definitely agree. Like uh, I think the biggest thing would be getting, you know, you have to have a coach that can actually teach it, right? You can't just hand yeah. them a thing like, here, you're going to do this because even in high school, yeah. Or, or even, yeah, even javelin, like, cause in, I've, I saw people almost get hit so many times in high school. I remember there was one practice specifically, I think one of my teammates was throwing and this girl was out in the field, not paying attention. And my other teammate like saw it flying at her literally ran like, luckily they were only throwing like a hundred feet, like not very far, but ran over and like smacked the discus out of midair. Cause it was about to hit this girl. What a um, hero. We need to have this yeah. guy on. What are we doing talking <laughs> to you? We need to talk to the discus hero. Right. Right. But, uh, <laughs> But yeah, and, you know, as a professional now and somebody who loves hammer, I would love to see more high school kids doing it. But yeah, it's hard to find somebody who can teach it, I guess, in a safe manner. And then it's even the facilities where most people have, you know, it's just a fence around their discus cage or something like that, where it's like not the not the best uh, best scenario for learning it. So, yeah. Did you play uh, football in high school? No. Once again, very uh, unusual path through, you know, my athletic career where like didn't play high school football at all. It's kind of one of my smaller regrets is I wish I would have done it just for the experience. Right. But no, I was, uh, I was in marching band uh, for uh, oh, heck my yeah. first three, my first three years. Yeah. Not so, a lot, not a lot of talent scouts out on the at marching band practice. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. So um, yeah, I, I enjoyed playing, you know, instruments and stuff like that when I was younger and then kind of found my way through, I played baseball, I wrestled um, and then kind of just got into strength and conditioning in general, just lifting weights, you know, like as a, as a young kid might. And then it uh, turns out I had to kind of knack for it. And that's kind of, um, sort of what led me into throwing in a way. 
was there someone like saw you lifting and was like, Hey, you should try like throwing, like, how do you stumble upon shot put in discus? Yeah. So, um, to elaborate that on, on that a little bit, um, like I said, I played baseball only my freshman year. I wasn't even good enough to make the, uh, the, like the JV team my sophomore year. Cause we had like a deep town pool of catchers and I played catcher. I was like the fourth string, you know, I would have been the fourth string catcher. They're like, we don't need that many catchers. Um, and, uh, but like through, through that, I remember having like rotator cuff injuries, went and did like physical therapy and I was like, wow, I can make my muscles stronger and then they don't hurt. And then I can be better at my sport. And then got into, like I said, just going and lifting at the YMCA with my friends. We used to call it, you know, the YMCA where champions are made even though we were just a bunch of, you know, what, 14, 15 year old kids bench pressing 135 pounds. And, um, but, but then you find like internet forums and I'm Googling, trying to learn more how to get bigger, stronger, you know, get bigger biceps, all that stuff, press girls. Um, <laughs> and then I wrestled my junior year and I, um, and kind of enjoyed that taught me work ethic. It really taught me how to work hard because you're just suffering through these workouts, um, almost every day. And then, uh, the off season came and then they're like, Hey, we're doing, uh, our off-season strength conditioning, like, are you coming to that? And I went and it was conditioning, but then also we went to the weight room and just followed this lifting program. And I was like, wow, I like getting strong. I like programming. And I figured out that strength and conditioning was like a legit profession that you could go into, um, you know, as a collegiate or as, you know, private personal trainer, or whatever that sort of thing, performance coach that got me interested. And I'm like, wow, I want to do this as a job for real. So I looked at gyms around the area that had, you know, more strength sports and stuff like that. And, and, uh, performance training and found this one gym called the gorilla pit and it was uh oh yeah we know the gorilla pit (laughs) right 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 um but it was uh it was a a very small powerlifting and and uh like strongman gym just happened to be like literally like 10 minutes down the road from my house and i was like i emailed them i was like hey can i do an internship here like i want to learn how to do all this stuff i want to be a strength conditioning coach and spent the next i don't know six months working out with them and they literally like the owner of the, of the gym was like, Hey, like, I know you're into wrestling, but like, you know, forget that. Just, uh, just do strongman. Like, like you have a kind of a knack for it. Like I was good at like lifting stones and like doing like some of the yoke walks and stuff like that. He's like, you should just bulk up. Cause at this point I was 180, maybe 190 pounds. It's like, you should bulk up just do strongman and just, just get strong as hell. And I was like, at that point in time, I was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I was kind of a late bloomer. And he was like, all right, so here's your diet. You're going to eat, um, uh, a pound of pasta a day, a, a pound of red meat a day, and then a gallon of milk a day. And this is over the summer uh, between my junior and senior year. Like I said, I started out 180, 190 pounds. By the time I started my senior year, I was 240 pounds. Um, I, yeah. So then I was walking around and like, I was a late bloomer too. So like it all kind of came at the right time where like, I, you know, hormones are, are just pumping and I'm fueling my body with so many excess calories, but also doing just the most heinous ridiculous lifting plan you could ever think of um and then so like i literally go back to school that first week and people are like who are you like we know yeah, you're you recognizable like, at this point or like they have no idea who you are they literally people were like what happened to you like how did this happen and i saw um my uh social studies teacher mr luck i was also the the head track coach he saw me and he's like donnelly you're, you're coming out and throwing this year i don't care what you say you're coming out and doing it and i'm like yeah yeah whatever i'm into this lifting thing like i don't you know I don't really care. Um, and then a little bit of a longer story. I ended up going out for track to impress this one girl. Um, and, uh, turns out that, like I said, I had kind of had a knack for throwing and believe it or not, you know, I ended up impressing the girl. got to, we dated for a little bit, whatever. Um, and, uh, but fell mostly fell in love with throwing, like I said, and that's kind of 
um, why I ended up going to my unit. I was like, well, I like this thing, so I'm going to keep pursuing it and, and see what happens. So, yeah, long, long, very unusual journey to, uh, to where I got. Well, what was the hardest thing to finish? The pound of pasta, the pound of meat, or the gallon of milk? Um, honestly, I didn't have any problem with any of it. I'm like, you know, I like to eat really like there were, I think, cause I would, I would drink literally instead of, you know, people drink like water or something while they're eating for me, I would just drink the chocolate milk. Like it was water. Like almost I would split it up over what, four or five meals. This and guy's then, from the uh, Midwest for sure. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> corn, corn fed kind of. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think if I did that now, I don't know. I think I actually developed lactose intolerance through, through <laughs> drinking all of that milk. So. Yeah. That's incredible. I'm just picturing like the athletes, like in high school, like, you know, carrying like a, a gallon jug of water, like from class to class. And you're just like jugging around like your chocolate milk, taking a swig, wiping the milk off of the mustache and like just going yeah. about your day. Like it's a normal thing. No, actually I had, I think it was that senior year. I had, I would bring a cooler, you know, like a lunchbox to school every day. And it would be full of like two or three shaker fulls of like chocolate milk. And then I would have like bananas and other protein shakes and stuff. And, uh, in between every class, I'd have to go grab like a banana or granola bar or something. And people are always like, dude, you're always eating. I was like, gotta get big. Like, you know, you gotta live the lifestyle. So, yeah. Dude, oh, I love that. I mean, that's like, I'm sure high school is like a weird time to do that because you're gonna get looked at, get, people are gonna make fun of you, but like, obviously it, it works out for you because you go on and have a great career currently having still a, a great career. So I guess you have the, the last laugh now for everyone making fun of you, drinking your milk and stuff. We need to oh, get you yeah. in a, we need to get you in a got milk campaign. There was actually uh, there's another uh, thrower, Peyton, not at all. He's a shot putter and he had a sponsorship with uh, it was, it was under that, you know, got milk sort of umbrella. It was, just, it was literally just called team milk. He was sponsored by team milk. And I like hit him up. as like, yo, how do I get involved with this? Like, I love milk. Like, you know um, and I actually filled out like their application, everything they got back to me. And then they're like, yeah, like we'll, we'll follow up in a couple of weeks or something like that. And then it just disappeared. Never heard anything back, unfortunately, but let's get off the milk train and back onto <laughs> back onto Mount Union. Yes. As your high school career was continuing on, you were getting thrown the throwing shop and discus further. You get to Mount Union, you make nationals your first or your first outdoor season. Were they just getting just this raw talent and then being able to work on your technique, just elevate your game? Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I mean, like I said, I had a really good, uh, I guess a relatively good strength base for like a high school kid, like I said, doing all the powerlifting and strong man. And like, I was pretty into the, the lifestyle, like I said, nutritionally and, and all that stuff. And, um, so I went in there. Yeah. Very raw. I had a decent amount of strength. I was, I guess, naturally relatively explosive, I suppose. Yeah. Just, I, I kind of fell into a good fit, I suppose, where, like I said, my senior teammate, Sean Denard, who currently now coaches at UCLA, still one of my best friends, I uh, just went to his wedding this past weekend, but um, he, like I said, was a senior. So and at that point, I think he qualified for nationals, I don't know, maybe eight or nine times, whatever, in shot put and discus. And then uh, Mount Union had a good history of throwing as well because of kind of that football team. So like they'd bring in, you know, all these football, you know, linemen and linebackers and stuff like that who weren't good enough to actually make the cut to play on the team, but then they'd end up uh, kind of following up with their second love, which would be throwing. And then you get these big, strong guys. And Justin Rohde was one of those people. And Justin Rohde is a, was a 2012 Olympian for Canada in the shot put. And uh, with him being an alumni, he, Denard worked with him online. So um, kind of taught him the ropes even more. Denard passed all that information on to me. I also worked with Justin Rohde 
um, kind of online. I'd send him videos. He'd write me programs and do all that stuff. And um, so kind of working on technique with Denard and him teaching me everything and then Rody's programming. Yeah, I kind of took this, you know, this raw athlete and developed it into, I mean, it was still pretty raw at the end of my freshman year, but, you know, you have all this raw material and kind of turn it into something that's, that's uh, worthy, I suppose. And um, yeah, so it was uh, that freshman year was, was interesting trying to figure everything out because it's not, you know, throwing is not just brute strength, right? It's a lot of technique and finesse and all that stuff. So it took a while to learn that, but yeah. How big was your like throws training crew? Um, I think we had maybe, maybe 10 or 12 people. Um, I think there were a couple other freshmen when I first started a couple sophomores, maybe like one junior. And then, and then I think like four or five seniors. Um, so I guess relatively small, depending on, you know, what school you're at, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was a decent size cause you go and everybody would kind of show up at once and you throw and then you hang out and, and, uh, it was a good crew for sure. Did you find as you like during the, over the course of your freshman year that you were kind of falling deeper and deeper kind of into this obsession with the throws kind of the more you learned? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, that's, like I said, I went in, in love with the sport of strongman, um, where like, I just wanted to lift heavy stones and press logs overhead and stuff like that. And then once I got to Mount Union and started training with Denard, where I was like, he was like, Hey, you can either do that or you can either do this. And then I was like, well, I only have four years, you know, to do this throwing thing, at least in my mind at the time. Um, so I might as well give it all I can and see what I can really, you know, get from it. And then as the year went on, yeah, I find myself in class daydreaming about throwing the shot put or throwing the hammer, or like when I'm laying in bed at night, I'm still thinking about throwing like in all my free time, it consumed my thoughts. I'm like, wow, like I'm really like obsessed with this thing. Right. It, it took a few months, but that's all I thought about all the time. And then I think, yeah, towards the end of my freshman year, I was like, man, like I want to do this, like, you know, for real, for real. And, you know, I had the dreams of like, you know, becoming an Olympian and, and back then it was the shot put, which is, you know, now understanding what it takes was a, was a crazy thing, but I guess I kind of found my niche with the hammer, but um, yeah, I'm just all consumed by throwing by the end of my freshman year. So you're all consumed by throwing and, and really buying into this lifestyle. You look at your indoors sophomore year, you no distance, no mark. How devastating was that? You know, we just talked about in the top of the hour, you know, you did that at Olympic trials, but this is back when you're a sophomore, new to the sport. You know, what was that situation like for you? Yeah, yeah. I think so that moment back then, I mean, obviously I'm so far removed from it where, you know, it obviously at the time I had, I was really beat up by it. And, and you know, it's just disappointing, right? Because you, I think as athletes, you don't go in thinking like, oh, I'm going to fall out. You go in thinking like, oh, I want to go win the thing or I want to go take top three or whatever. Um, I want to go be an All-American or whatever it might be. And uh, that indoor season, I was kind of riddled with injury. And like I said, with the goal of being a, you know, a, a shot putter, I thought, well, if I threw far at 240, 250 pounds, then, you know, if I want to be the best, I need to be 270, 280 pounds. And like the, uh, the overconsumption of food continued on to the point where I got to like 270, 280. And it turns out my, I'm not really built for that sort of weight. So I kind of developed some injuries at adductor strains and stuff like that. And just being generally out of shape. And um, myself kind of caught up with me. And, and I think it was um, at the meet, I remember that my sophomore year indoors, I had been struggling with adductor issues. And like the day of, I was feeling really good. And like, I took my first warm-up throw. I was like, oh, that felt so good. Like, I'm ready to go today. Then the next warm-up throw, I ended up pulling my adductor. And I'm like, damn it. Like, I don't know. I got to fight through this. And then, uh, yeah, I just couldn't, couldn't really hold on to it. And I think, you know, even on the throws that if I would have marked, they wouldn't have been far enough to make finals. So I was like, well you know, give it my best, but, um, it was kind of humbling at the same, 
in, in some regard where like after a freshman year, I took fifth outdoors as a freshman. I'm like, man, I'm going to go dominate division three the next year. And, uh, that, that wasn't the case. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so it was a good, it was a good humbling moment, like in retrospect, but at the time, of course, just, um, maybe not quite as heartbreaking as trials, but still heartbreaking in a way for sure. This is maybe a stupid question, but are injuries and throws primarily a result of like practicing technique or are they like weight room related or it could be anything, I guess. But. Yeah, I, it could be a combination of, of, uh, of both. I think when it really comes down to it, like injuries, I think in throwing come from pretty much just the kind of loading uh, deficiency, if that makes sense. So like you have a, for example, I had weak adductors because of the way that I trained. I didn't do, you know, um, full depth squats. I did mostly quarter squats and stuff like that. And, um, from what I've learned from my, you know, exercise science degree is that like, when you do squat all the way down to depth, it works your adductors in a specific way and not having done any of that stuff. I, like I said, just, I had weak adductors and then it's just a very used, I guess, maybe overused muscle in the throwing motion, at least in rotational shot put and discus. And, um, yeah, I just had really weak muscles. I kept putting a lot of force through it. And of course it was kind of, you know, you're going to get some tears, you're going to get some pulls and stuff like that. Um, and I think it's everybody kind of has their own thing, like in, in hammer throw, it's more so like the low back and stuff like that, or, um, shot and disc, you have torn packs and stuff like that. So you maybe have just overtrained packs or, you know, kind of stretched out from throwing or from, you know, doing whatever. And then you go in the weight room and you overload and you tear your pack or, uh, even sometimes throwing, you're just overtrained and same thing. Um, I've seen it in both, but it's definitely a mix for sure. I'm going to talk about the 2014 season as a whole. You know, this was the first time Mountain Union wins their first ever track and field outdoor national title. You look at the year prior outdoors, you know, just outside the top 10 going into that season. Was that circled on the calendar? Like, Hey, outdoors is our time to go win a title. Yeah. Yeah. No, that year was, Ooh, that was such a, that was such a fun year where, um, like I said, Mount Union had a pretty decent track and field program as it was, at least at the conference level where, you know, I think every year that we went in there, we're like, all right, we're going to win this thing. Like no doubt about it. And, uh, so that year, the start of the year, it was, I think we had maybe four or five seniors that were on that uh, national championship team. And then the rest of us were sophomores or juniors. And like, we were at, by that point, you know, you spend, I spent three years with some of my best friends and then, you know, three years with the other people on the team and really just close knit group. And of course we all wanted to be the best where like my roommate was Tyler Mattel. He was a division three national champion in the 400 hurdles. Chase Swisher was, you know, pretty good in the sprints. I think he was maybe all American in the hundred the year before. And so you just had a, quite a few people who were like really competitive, really like, Hey, we're going to go. We, 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 I think at one point we sat down at the beginning of the year and we're like, we could win a team title this year. Like, let's go for it. Like, let's, let's work with that in mind. Like, we just wanted to go out and dominate, you know, the whole country. And um, like I said, I think at some point we had that conversation. And then as the year went on, we're like, oh yeah, like this is still what we're going to do. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, I don't really know how realistic this is. But then all of a sudden there we are like the week of, and we're like, we have a shot at this. You know, if we pull it off right, there's a chance we could do it. And then um, a lot of things, a lot of things fell into place. And it just so happened that, um, yeah, kind of, it worked out. So just a lot of good, a lot of good dudes on the team that year who were all really kind of bought into this one kind of singular goal. And it just, uh, it, it paid off. You know, training and competing with a team championship in mind, does it add pressure or does it like in some ways kind of relieve pressure? Cause you're kind of competing for something bigger than just your own accomplishment. Um, that's a good question. I think, you know, it, it could go either way. And I think for me, 
with the with the team that we had like I think because we only brought like it was like 10 or 12 people or maybe only had like 10 point scorers or something like that but um we were all like holding each other accountable throughout the whole year like whenever we'd be in the weight room together we'd be cheering each other on or like making sure we weren't slacking or you know even when they were running track workouts and I was throwing us cheering them on watching them making sure they were doing the best that they could and stuff like that so um I think going into that meet it was it was you know it was probably more of a pressure relief to know that there were all these other people who were just as bought into it as you were. So it was like, Hey, we've put in this whole year of work. Like we can do this together, like as a team. So in the moment, yeah. Like, and then of course, within the meet, you feel a little bit of pressure because you're like, Hey, like this needs to go right. But we were all just kind of on fire that weekend, I think. So it was, uh, you know, you see one person do well, or like, I think the very first day I won the, uh, won the hammer. So people like that got people fired up. So then they wanted to go out and do all their events. And then the next day I won the shop put and same thing. It was just like this momentum just kept building and building to the point where like it came down to the four by four and like we had a very good four by four team and we knew that they could have you know won the title and like we're all standing around you know almost our whole team was there standing around at different points of the track like yelling making sure that everybody's getting cheered on and um yeah they ended up winning and we had, we won the meet on the very last race and it was just uh yeah really inspiring to have that momentum building throughout the entire meet i suppose so let's say you're there on the sideline for the four by four you're pumped up just to watch during his stride, the anchor leg pulls a hamstring and they look around, they say, Sean, you're the only one who can do it. Will you run anchor for this four by four with the national championship on the line? What do you split for the 400? Ooh, at that point in time, I think I probably would have, I probably would have split a nice like 62 maybe. Would that, <laughs> but, uh, would, would that have still won or how close? How no, close no, it? It, was, it, was a, it was a, it was a close race. I think it came down to like, there were, I think it was a couple, maybe one or two seconds between like first and I think the third place team that was, uh, that we were kind of competing with. So I don't, I wouldn't have been able to pull it off, but I would have definitely, you know, I would have poured my heart into it for sure. I think you would have risen to the occasion. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to think so, but <laughs> it was separated by four hundredths of a second. Oh, yeah. for real? Yeah. 30981, 30985. So we're going to wow. be better than a 62. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. But, um, you know, if, yeah, if it would have came down to it, I would have put my, uh, my heart on the line for sure. So hearing, you know, like your high school days of going all into being a strong man and, you know, people asking why, why you're doing that, how refreshing was it to be a part of this team that was fully bought in and surrounding yourself with those individuals who are like-minded and, and you all pulled together versus you doing your own thing by yourself? Yeah, no, that's, um, that's uh that's a great question because like yeah looking back on that time like I said I all those people that I was on the team with you know my junior year um they were like they were like brothers to me we were family for sure like we hung out all the time we we trained together like we were just around each other all the time and it definitely felt like a really you know like it's like a family occasion really um so having that support was huge whereas you know over the past I guess being a professional is a professional track and field or professional thrower really is kind of a lonely endeavor. So I kind of got both sides of it where like early on in my college career, like I said, my freshman year, I had Sean Denard as a training partner, but then sophomore year, it's kind of on my own to an extent. And yeah, I would take having, you know, training partners around. I would take having a really, you know, a solid group of guys around me that are really bought into, you know, everything that we want to achieve. Um, I would take that over training alone, you know, any day of the week, because uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've gotten to experience more of that, uh, the lonelier side, I guess, of, of, of training and, while I do consider myself more of a lone wolf, like I'm very independent and I kind of do enjoy my alone time, um, having somebody else pushing you and or seeing them work hard is also inspiring in its own way and, and motivational. 
yeah, that, that, uh, that, that, like I said, the family dynamic really, really helped everybody out. I think. You experienced those successes your junior year when you anchored the winning four by 400 team. Like when, when you, when that year wrapped up, where was your competitive mindset? Cause sometimes dealing with success is like kind of difficult because the athletes will feel like they, they peaked or whatever. They, they check the boxes and they don't have anything left to compete for. And then other athletes, I imagine you probably fall into this camp are extremely motivated by that success and want to replicate it. How did you, yeah. what was your thought process? Yeah, no, I think um, we, we all felt the same way. Like I said, there were like 10 or 12 of us that were still there. And I think all of us, but one or two people were returning. Um, so then we're thinking like, all right, we're going to repeat again next year. Um, and so that whole summer, you know, you train is just, just as hard as you did the year before that whole fall and everything. You're just as bought into it as you were the year before. So our goal was to uh, go back and repeat as, as national champions. And some things kind of, you know, developed that didn't let us, uh, I wouldn't even say didn't, shouldn't let us, but, um, yeah, I made some choices that kind of made it hard for everybody else to make that happen. But um, I think indoors, we ended up taking third as a team. And I think that was the first time we placed as a team, you know, indoors. So like, even then we still accomplished something pretty, uh, pretty solid. But yeah, we were all definitely just as motivated as we were uh, the prior year, for sure. Looking at your TFERS, your career, your D3 career ends at that indoor meet. You win weight throw, seventh in the shot put, which is kind of funny. You go into college thinking you're going to be a shot putter, but then you leave D3 winning a completely different event you never even knew about. What went into the decision process then to transfer to Minnesota? You had a season of eligibility and had a great season with them, the Gophers. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so for me, it was... And I guess, uh, so thinking about talking about success and, and how that affects people, um, in that senior year, it was a lot of combined things where, um, around like December, January, you know, some people start thinking about like, all right, well, what am I going to do after I graduate? Cause after this, like then what? Right. And for me, like I said, I wanted to go into strength and conditioning. I was looking at graduate assistantships and all that stuff and, and applying to grad schools, taking the GRE and all this stuff. And, um, what I've since learned is that around that December, January area, Uh, And it doesn't really match up where um, for me, I was looking for like jobs to apply for and stuff to kind of aim for for the fall once I was done or even the summer. Um, And there wasn't really anything, but I had applied to grad schools and the deadlines for a lot of these places were like November, December. And I'm like, well, how am I supposed to find a job without taking an extra like gap year, I guess. Right. Um, So it was like this weird feeling of like, all right, I don't know what I'm gonna do with my life after this year, but I know I want to keep throwing. I want to go into strength conditioning. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. And then um, I think it randomly, uh, I saw a job posting for a strength and conditioning position at the University of Minnesota for throwers and for baseball. And I was like, wow, like I throw and then I used to play baseball and I want to go into strength and conditioning and I would love to go to Minnesota because Cal Dietz is there and he's like this big, you know, he's a, he's a big name in the strength and conditioning world and I'd get to learn from him. I'm like, that would be a dream job if you ask me. And this was January of uh, my senior year. I shoot a message. It was on like a thrower forum. I shoot a message to what I learned was throws coach there, Lyndon Raider. And he's like, yeah, let me give you a call and, and we'll, we'll chat about it. Um, and gives me a call and he's like, Hey, um, this, uh, this job that you, that you want, uh, it needs to be filled like right now. So you wouldn't really be eligible for it. And I'm like, Oh, like bummer. He's like, but I, I've heard your name before and I actually looked you up on T first and like, you have some pretty respectable, uh, you know, throwing distances. And like, he, he very much tiptoed around the, uh, the subject because I think it was kind of, you know, in that gray area of recruiting where it's like, we shouldn't be talking about this, but, you know, and he was like, you know, the Minnesota offers a lot of good, uh, you know, 
kind of incentives for, for student athletes. And, you know, like it's, it's a really good place to develop as an athlete. And I'm like, huh? Yeah. Like interesting, like kind of understanding what he's getting at, but I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Like I want to, I, like I said, in my mind, I was thinking like, we we're going to go repeat another team championship outdoors. But then I got thinking over the next few days and I'm like, well, I've already, you know, I set the division Well, not at this point I didn't do it, but um, I want to, you know, we want a team championship. I want shot, put, I want hammer one weight throw once already. Like there's really not much left for me in the division three, you know, championship sort of world. Like, yeah, I could go win discus or whatever, or maybe I could set the hammer national record or whatever, but like that, I don't know. It didn't really, you know, align with the goals that I wanted where like, like I said, I wanted to be a professional. I wanted to be an Olympian by this point where I was like, Hey, I want to go to the U S championships. Like my goal is to go to the U S championships in 2015. Wasn't even close to making it, but um, I wanted to continue on in hopes of being an Olympian. And I'm like, well, thinking about it, it's like, there's not much left for me in D3 here. This is kind of the next stepping stone in my mind. So thinking about it over a few days and I was like, well, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to take the leap. I'm going to, I'm going to go, or at least I'm going to see what he has to offer. I'm gonna, he sent like the permission to contact form, which absolutely pissed off my head coach. He was like, what is this? Like, cause he had no idea about it. Right. And um, I'm like, Oh, just, we were talking about, you know, whatever. And I tried to play it off. Like it wasn't anything big. And then he's like, don't even, don't even consider this. Cause he's going to whine and dine you. And you know, they're going to, throw fancy things at you and, and try to get you to commit. And then like, but he's thinking kind of selfishly in his own way, the same I was, but, but oppositely where he's like, I want to win another team title where I'm like, Hey, I want to focus on my own career and, and try to be, you know, as good as I can. And then that kind of transpired over the next month or so figuring it out. I ended up signing like the commitment letter, I guess. And uh, news kind of broke just after the indoor national championships. And like, like I said, so those 10 guys that I was on the team with, that I was like best buds with half of them, we're like, Hey man, this is phenomenal. Like go chase your dreams. Like you deserve this. Like you're, you're such a good athlete, like go for it. And then the other half were like, we hate you. We're never going to talk to you again. Like, we can't believe you did this to us. Like, what about the team title? Like that sort of thing. It's a very polarizing, very polarizing, which is a very hard thing to kind of go through. Cause I still had, you know, another two or three months around all of those people um, before I, uh, before I left for the summer. So when, when you were talking to the guys who were questioning the decision and kind of spinning as a, you know, selfish act and stuff, what was your response? Like, how did you defend your decision to them? Um, yeah, like I said, it was just like, I was like, Hey man, like, I want to, I want to go be great. I want to go be an Olympian. And like, as much as, you know, everybody's like, Oh, like you could stay in D3. You could stay here. You could train here. You can make it happen. Cause like, even talking to the head coach, he's like, we'll get you a job, you know, like something like give you a, you know, a 12 K stipend and you'll be a, a coach on the team. Like you could do that and then keep training. I'm like, well, and at this point I had seen multiple other people take, you know, the jumps job or whatever, who wanted to be post-collegiate athletes come to Mount Union and do this. And then within a matter of like two or three months, they end up stopped training because they're just like overworked and they're like, I can't balance both. So I'm like, well, it's probably not in my best interest to stay here. Also, I don't know if I have the resources in terms of, you know, a technical coach or, a strength coach or like I said, sports med or all that stuff where I'm like, I don't know if I have what I need to make it to where I want to go. And I'm like, well, plus it's just a once in a lifetime opportunity. Like how often do you get to go be a division one athlete, like at a, at a, you know, a big state school and then go compete for the division one championships, like that level of competition, like how good do you really want to be? And the thing that I used to tell myself back then is like, do you want to be the big fish in the small pond or do you want to be the small fish in the big pond? And, you know, I think, um, the, actually one of the movies that I loved and I still love uh, it's called big fish. And the, uh, one of the quotes right at the beginning of the movie is like, um, you know, if you put a goldfish in a small bowl, it 
kind of grows to the confines that it has. But if you put a goldfish out in a big, you know, pond or whatever, it's going to grow to be much, much larger. And so that was where my head was at. I was like, well, I'm in this really small pond and I am kind of the big fish in the small pond in terms of division three, having won as many titles as I did. And um, the idea of going and being the small fish in a big pond was kind of, I guess, motivating to me where I was like, there's going to be so much room for growth, I suppose. Like it's going to be very challenging. Right. But um, there's just so much room to grow into, I suppose. And that's kind of the route that I wanted to take it. And some of them, they didn't get it because like I said, they wanted to, uh, they wanted to repeat. They wanted to be national champions again. And without me, you know, it it, uh, unfortunately didn't seem like a real possibility, I suppose. I love hearing this story and, you know, I, I, the both sides of it, that's gotta be so hard. Like the people like who understand you, I feel like are the ones I'm assuming maybe you still talk to because they understood what your goals entailed and moving on was what was best for you. And, you know, I think you have to have this confidence in yourself to like go what's after and go get yours because you know, what's best for yourself. And obviously you want to be a good teammate, but at the end of the day, like you got to go make sure you can do what you need to do. And, and I feel like that's been a, a trend, this entire conversation we've had, like you've been all in on strong man early in her high school days, drinking milk in school. And like it continued. And, you know, you, you mentioned being a small fish in a big pond, but you came out and competed and were fourth at the NCAAs. Like how big of an impact did it have on, you know, being in this environment, being at Minnesota that, really elevated your game to a whole new level. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, I remember distinctly how I felt that that summer going into it. Um, cause I, th- I think it was in May, like it, there was just after finals ended just before, you know, I guess after finals ended, I didn't really have any other obligations. I didn't have to train for a national championship or whatever. I was just competing on my own. So I ended up taking, um, an official visit, uh, to, to Minnesota and um, got to meet all the guys on the team and see the facility, see the campus, try to get an idea of like what it would feel like. And as I got there, I realized like, wow, um, I am the smallest and the weakest person on the throw squad, like going in, like my, my marks were respectable and better than most of them. But I was like, I'm the smallest and the weakest. Um, I was like, I, it felt like sink or swim to me where I was like super anxious about it for months. Cause I was like, am I going to fit in? Like, are they going to respect me? Like all this stuff. So in my mind, I spent that whole summer, probably two or three months, just training like a madman. Um, I was out throwing every single day almost. I was doing all my lifting on top of working like a strength conditioning job, like almost full time, um, training till eight or nine at night, waking up the next morning at 5 a.m., going to work and all that stuff. Um, just going absolutely hard because I was like, man, like I, I guess I was just so afraid of failure. And, you know, if I would have went to Minnesota and then kind of fizzled out and not gotten any better, like that would have made the decision uh, feel, I guess, even worse of like, cause I already felt bad leaving all my teammates. Um, th- at least, you know, everybody that was like, Oh, Hey, like, how could you do this to us? Like, I felt bad. I, 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 they were, like I said, they were my family to an extent. Um, and then and I was like, I need to make this decision, right? Like I need to go there. I need to work my ass off and I need to like show everyone like, Hey, this is, this was the right thing to do. Um, and I guess that's kind of what happened where like over that fall and that like, you know, indoor season training just as hard as I was over the summer, I think I was throwing maybe eight or nine times a week. So like two a days, a lot of the times, and then um, lifting four or five days a week, just like going absolutely nuts. And then that very first meet that I opened up at Minnesota, when I threw 74.35, which was like an eight meter personal best at the time, like immediately I was like, like everything just felt like it had paid off. Right. Cause all of a sudden I, w- I went from nobody to all of a sudden I was, you know, at that point in time, I think I was number one in the U S but it's so early, but then I ended up the year at like top four or five in the U S and 
like I even had all like about half the people who, like I said, were upset at me for leaving, ended up texting me and being like, Hey, great job, man. Like even the head coach, like I said, he was really upset with me that I was leaving to the point where like, we were like almost best buds before. And then I said, I'm leaving. And then he kind of cut me off. And then he ended up texting me like a couple of days later. And he's like, Hey, like, saw what you did. I'm, I'm really proud of you. Like way to go. So yeah, it was, um, it was, it was this, like I said, I was, I was out of fear really, but it was, it was a great motivator and, and uh, it was a huge stepping stone for sure. Yeah. That was going to, I was definitely going to ask if anybody, you know, when they saw your results and, you know, with that top five ranking reached out and they're like, you know what, he was right all along. And maybe we were kind of being selfish too, that we were upset at him. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've talked to quite a few people since then. Like I said, the people that were upset and, you know, they're like, oh, like they, they kind of, you know, they either apologize or like, Hey, like, you know, I'm sorry for doubting you or whatever. And, um, and yeah, we're, I'd say pretty much everything is mended except for maybe the athletic director of my union. I feel like he still doesn't like me, but, uh, yeah, outside of that, everybody that I care about, um, we're, we're all good now. And they, like I said, they get it. And the fact that I'm still doing it and I'm still, you know, competing professionally, they're like, you know, it's probably the right decision. So. Well, I know a lot of places, you know, don't give free ads, but we got to ask about grip and rip your company. <laughs> A little yes, bit of apparel, a yes. little bit of coaching, like take us through all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, it's, it's kind of, um, yeah, I guess it's my own brand, my own business, I guess, where I've done kind of online coaching for a few years now. Um, just kind of on the side really where, you know, if people would message me, they'd be like, Hey, where can I get some coaching? Can you help me out? Whatever. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I'll do a technical analysis for you know 10 or 15 bucks or whatever. And then, um, like I said, the professional track and field world is, is an unforgiving one where there's really not much income. So I'm like, well, this is my little side hustle to help keep things going. Like I said, piecing a lot of things together. And then as I've just gotten older, I've realized like there's a uh, kind of a, just a big gap, I guess, in the throws world of, you know, sponsorship and also just income in general. And like, there's really no, I guess, I suppose, lifestyle brands for throwers out there, like, you know, Nike and Adidas and all that stuff. Like, yes, they sponsor throwers, but they're not really targeting their stuff towards throwers. Um, whenever they send out gear, most of the stuff is targeted towards distance runners and sprinters and stuff like that. Where like when I get some of Adidas gear, um, it just kind of fits a little weird most of the time, unfortunately, but, um, yeah, so, so I've through this coaching business, I've kind of branded a few different ways, kind of just under my name, either Sean Donnelly, you know, or Sean Donnelly track club, SDTC, whatever. Um, and I was like, well, I want something that is a little bit more broader uh appeals to more people and i was like my friends and i always say grip and rip like as a joke and i'm like wait i think that's a pretty solid name so i, I did that and now over the past year or so uh after trials i was like well i need kind of some sort of other project and income and stuff like that and uh kind of went full bore into that and developing you know an actual brand getting graphic design done um selling apparel and stuff like that and uh yeah it's been interesting trying to figure all that out and balance it with throwing as well because it is almost it could be a full-time job by itself but uh, yeah, hopefully the goal with that is to, like I said, this upcoming year, I do want to sponsor some, some top level throwers and try to help them get some more income in their pockets and stuff like that. And cause yeah, the, the, the sponsorships are really drying up for the throws. So um, just kind of trying to find my way to kind of one, like I said, give back to the younger generation in terms of creating content and doing online coaching and stuff like that and showing them the, the path, I suppose, but then also helping out elite level athletes who are already in the sport and making it easier for them to continue on, you know, training and, uh, competing at a high level. So yeah. Yeah. Grip and rip athletic company. If anybody out there is, is uh, interested, you know, when we're kind of like talking to athletes and new event groups that we haven't really covered on the podcast and we don't have a lot of experience with, I like for you guys to kind of describe 
what it is you actually do. And so I, I was wondering, like, if you could kind of walk us through a hammer throw, like as if we're like you inside of your brain while it's happening. Like, do you have cues that you're kind of going through while you're throwing? I, ooh, I, could, I mean, I could use phrases to describe. I don't know if I could say the exact things, right? But yeah, I mean, that's a weird thing, right? When I tell people like, they're like, oh, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a track and field athlete. I don't even really say professional because it feels weird. And they're like, well, what do you do? I throw the hammer and half the time they think it's like, you know, like the kind of hammer that you hit nails with, right? And I'm like, no. It should, it should be. Like, right? you, like, like you hit, you're hitting a nail, it slips and hit your finger and then you just hurl it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that'd be so satisfying. Um, but uh yeah, no. So then I have to be like, no, it's like, I was like, you know, the shot put, right. And then I have to describe like, well, it's like the shot put, but then end of like this, you know, three, three and a half foot long wire with a handle. And then usually by that point, they're like, oh, I think I've seen that. If not, then I'm like, well, I have to show them a video because otherwise it's just really unbelievable to say like, hey, I spin around four, four times, like in a backwards direction and throw something over my shoulder. And it's like throwing a bowling ball, almost the length of a football field. They're like, what are you even talking about? Right. Um, but as you're going through the throw, it's just like, I don't know, at least the, the, the way I describe like a perfect throw, and I guess this isn't, you know, hundred percent applicable because that only happens maybe once out of every thousand, but, um, throwing hammer is really like, it's a, it's a really delicate dance in a way where like, um, if you're doing it just right, the hammer's pulling on you almost more than you're pulling on it. So the hammer feels like, you know, all of the movement and all of the force comes just from the hammer. So, you know, you wind, you get a little bit of momentum going. And then as soon as you kind of like sling it in on your entry, you let the ball go by you. And then from there, it should realistically just be, you're just along for the ride. So it's a really weird thing. That's different from, of course, definitely running because you're always propelling yourself. Right. But uh, you, you send the hammer out to the left and it just starts turning you. And then in some cases, you don't even need to think about putting your foot down. It's just like a natural kind of spinal reflex in the way you put your foot down. And then it's just four more times of, of just kind of waiting and letting it go and catching and letting it go and the only thing you have to do is just not kind of give into it so you're playing tug of war and you don't want to win the war but you don't want the hammer to win the war so like i said it's a really delicate balance so it's like i don't know if you can feel what i'm feeling when i describe it but uh yeah it's 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 really different and the, the best way to show i guess for somebody to understand it you have to show them a video and they're like how do you not fall over how do you not get dizzy all that stuff and it's just you know i'm like well half the time i black out so i don't know <laughs> but uh yeah so it's a different event for sure. Do you, do you still follow strongman at all? No, not as much as I used to. I mean, like, obviously you see the odd video on Instagram or whatever, like the occasional world strongest man video on like ESPN, but um, not as much, uh, not as much anymore. Is that because uh, probably surprisingly uh, I do uh, <laughs> to some extent follow strongman, but there, there's a lot of parallels and kind of like the business model, I would say, between what you're describing as a thrower and what some of the top strongmen do. I mean, a lot of them launch their own nutrition apparel companies. Um, you know, Brian Shaw and Eddie Hall are both like very well known for launching YouTube channels, which is kind of similar to what, what you've done with your social media. And so there is that path of people in non the like quote non-revenue sports right who have to like forge ahead so i was just curious if there were any parallels yeah. there with you no no for sure for sure and that's you know like through yeah even like strongman but then other strength sports in general powerlifting highland games stuff like that uh one of the biggest influences for griffin rip was uh matt vincent he was a highland games guy and also through in uh in college at lsu he started this uh apparel brand called hate brand goods that actually sponsored me for i think it was my first year professional and so I made kind of um, connection with him and, and picking his brain and figuring out how things work. He's like, there's really nothing in the track and field world that 
parallels this. And it is, it's a hustle for sure. And it, it, you do get a lot of like, especially when it comes to creating YouTube videos and stuff and vlogging and holding a camera up and, you know, stuff like that in public, like people think you're weird and whatever, but also it's helped me literally survive and continue to throw as long as I've have. So yeah, it's, it's a little weird and a lot out there, but um, seeing those other people do it, like, yeah, it's throwing just very niche, very small, but in terms of doing it, it's, it's, it's possible. Um, and it does help grow the sport where I've had people reach out or like just they randomly see videos on on Instagram and then they, they start throwing and they get into it. And in terms of just track and field as a whole, like getting more people into the sport, it's probably better. Getting more people to follow you on social media is probably better for the sport. Um, so yeah, it's been, um, it's been fun seeing other people kind of branch out into this stuff. Cause I was, at least in terms of professional track and field, I was one of the first people to start vlogging and, and trying to build a, a social media following. And since then you see other people start making YouTube videos or podcasts or, you know, advertising themselves on social media and watching them grow followings. And I'm like, yes, like, like this is you know it's good it's good for sure because like i said you just gotta get the word out because otherwise people don't know about it they don't hear about it and you know i guess the bigger the following the more opportunity there is for income for the sport as a whole so it's really been interesting to see that stuff grow yeah one thing we forgot to ask here is you know you mentioned adidas going pro like just the whole process of going pro when you threw 74 meters early on finishing fourth at ncaa's you went on to trials that help you start your professional career not not quite uh the uh like i said the the throwing world is tough um trying in terms of getting like proper sponsor sponsorships and and considering yourself a, a quote-unquote professional at least in what i think what most people imagine is professional right um and i don't think i didn't get sponsored by adidas until um i didn't actually i think sign a contract until the end of 2019 um but uh, yeah, so I, like I said, I had Ironwood Throws Club as my, I guess, title sponsor, if you will. And, but even then it's, it's to call that professional is, um, you know, it's not, not quite correct, I guess. Cause it's, you know, it helps out, but it's not like, I'm not living off my income from them or anything. And uh, so every year, you know, I'm throwing farther, I'm setting PRs, I'm going to meets and doing pretty well. I'm taking top three at USA's and I'm thinking like, man, like, when am I going to get some sort of sponsorship, like a legit big shoe sponsorship? Um, and it wasn't until, like I said, that, uh, the summer of 2019, I went overseas, had a good few meets. I think I got my world ranking up to like, I think it was top 10 in the world. And, uh, the way this all transpired, once again, really weird, unusual story. I, uh, I went and competed in Germany for a couple of meets, flew to Poland for a meet like the next day. And, um, when I got to Poland, my bag never showed up and I made the, like the number one mistake of any traveling track field athlete, which is always bring your competition stuff in your carry on. And I decided, I decided to leave it in my, my checked bag. I get there and I'm like, well, I don't have anything to compete in. Like I had my throwing shoes and my throwing gloves, but I didn't have anything to wear for competition. So I had to go to the mall, uh, this Polish mall that was right down the road from my hotel. The Nike store was closed. The Adidas store was open, walk in there. I grabbed like a singlet, some spandex, some other stuff to wear just in case my stuff never showed up. And um, I'm like trying stuff on. I'm like, wow, this stuff's like pretty nice. So I decided to like tweet about it. And I'm like, uh, you know, this Adidas gear is pretty nice, you know, and tag the account, whatever. And my agent follows me on Twitter, sees this just so happens the next weekend to be at uh, some diamond league meet meets the head of, of like Adidas marketing or something. And uh, is telling him about my story of how I lost all my stuff and, you know, tried on some of your gear. I really liked it. And it turns out that's how he made the connection of like, they're like, Oh yeah, I told him about it. They're going to send you some gear. Like you're going to wear it at USA's. So hopefully you go do well. 
and then hopefully we'll get you a, you know, a proper deal. And that's exactly kind of what happened. Like I said, that was all summer 2019. And then, like I said, December, 2020, they're like, Hey, or just December, 2019, they're like, Hey, here's a contract. Like you're officially, you know, going to be an Adidas athlete. So real, like I said, that's just, you know, the general gist of most of my timeline, but it's really weird and usual stuff that just kind of falls into place. And just like the happy accidents of life. Like you were probably yes. so pissed. You were probably so pissed when your bag was lost. Dude. Yeah. I was, I was like, what am I going to do? Uh, yeah. I, I was, I was very like, I was like, of course the one time I really need it. Cause like I said, the next day, like I got in at like 6 PM or whatever. And I was competing at like 3 PM the next day. I was like, oh man, like, of course, of course this would happen. So, but, uh, so we can just tweet at brands and see if they'll sponsor us. We've been, we've, I've been emailing people and haven't heard back. Well, you have to finish top five at USA is after you do that. <laughs> well, I meant, well, the, how we're a top five podcast. We're a top world. five division three running podcast. Yeah. I, th- I, I would say so. You know, I think, uh, yeah, just, just start ripping tweets out to every brand. You're going to get someone. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, so we, we're, we're starting to run out of time here. You just competed at USA's. The world championships were this weekend. The The global championships are going to start coming like kind of thick and fast over the next couple of years. Um, you're, you've just left the Olympic training center. What's your situation going to be like going forward? What's motivating you and, you know, where are we going to start seeing you pop up? Um, yeah. Uh, so I actually just moved to Phoenix. Uh, I started working with a new coach just like on Monday, I guess, technically, um, Nate Ott, who, uh, he coached Brooke Anderson, the most recent, uh, world champion in the women's hammer. So I'm doing, I guess, like a little trial period with him, getting a feel for what he's like and what their group is like. Um, hopefully, I mean, so far so good. It's, it's cool having training partners and having a coach, you know, day to day, like checking me out and making sure everything's right. And then, um, even just a new training system, like a good switch up for my body, I suppose. And been feeling kind of stale, I guess, after, you know, four or five years of the same thing. And then, um, so yeah, so I'll be around here for at least, uh, the next few months, the next year, probably. And I'd like to say probably at least through 2024, you know, like you said, uh, world champs next year, Olympic champs, the world after that. And then what is it? The next world champs is in Tokyo the year after that. So yeah, busy three years. Uh, we'll see what happens with that, but, um, yeah, it's just, uh, I guess I'm a new, a new chapter has begun the same way that when I moved to Minnesota, I kind of had the same sort of anxieties, I suppose. Um, so I've been through it once and I know I'll survive and hopefully come out uh, the other side of it, a, a better athlete. So is your, are you shut down for the season now or will you keep competing? Uh, it's a, it's a weird in between. Uh, there's only like a few more meets that I'd be able to compete in professionally, uh, or at least I guess that are worthwhile. Uh, one in August 8th in Hungary, but that's like, uh, my agent was like, oh, I couldn't get you into that one because it's literally like the top three people from worlds and then six Hungarian guys. So that's a, unfortunately isn't going to happen. And then, um, the, there's two more meets in Hungary at the beginning of September. So I had this weird, like, you know, six to eight week span of time where I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I was like, well, this would be a perfect time to do a little trial period where otherwise I took three weeks off getting back into training. Now I'm essentially training as if I'm prepping for next year. But if I do get into those last two meets, then I'll go compete and just see how it goes. But there's really nothing riding on on my, you know, don't need to qualify for any teams. I'm not looking for world ranking points or anything. It's just experience, maybe mixed money, hopefully. But um, yeah, we'll see. So I'm, I'm in this weird kind of limbo, but I'd say pretty much at this point, just training for next year. So, well, Sean, thank you for taking some time with us, enlightening us on the throws and, and finally coming on the podcast, which was great. And I know everyone else will enjoy it and good luck in the, if you compete this year and best of luck moving forward in Phoenix. For sure. I appreciate it. Had fun.
It's a good time. That's it for another episode of D3 Glory Days on the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. Thanks to Sean for his time today and sharing more about his career and providing more insight into how he handles the stresses of being a professional track and field athlete. Once again, make sure you follow Sean on Instagram, Twitter, and his company, Grip and Rip. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, here's the glory days. Mm-hmm.